Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning. And through the power of your Spirit, we would hear our Savior call. Come to me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some songs that get you. <laughs> I don't recall much about fourth grade. I can only recall a few of my friends' name at the time and that my teacher's name was Miss Luckett. But I do recall one particular event. We were sitting at our desk, Miss Luckett was teaching, and there was a knock on the door that interrupted the class. And a gentleman walked in, and Miss Luckett and this gentleman began to have this conversation in the doorway. And then they began to scanning the classroom as if they were looking for a particular individual. And they proceeded to point to my classmate Amy and myself. And they called us up to the front of the class, and Miss Luckett introduced us to the gentleman. And it turned out that he was a producer from KET, and he was looking for a boy and a girl of our age to star in an upcoming film the network was producing. And it was about Louisville and its history. And they asked if we'd be interested, and we we're like, sure, this sounds great. So they sent us home to talk to our parents, and we got with Miss Luckett about further details. And within a short period of time, we were filming this documentary about Louisville and its history. Now, mind you, this was 1988, and the graphics for the KT Network were not the greatest. Uh, but I recall the opening scene. Amy and I were standing behind a 12-foot statue of King Louis XVI, which is down at the corner of Six and Jefferson. And I began to look around to see if anybody was looking, and when the coast was clear, I proceeded to pull out a marker from my jacket, and right on the base of this 12-foot statue in big letters, Michael loves or hearts Amy. Now, kids, I was way too young to be writing something like that, and graffiti is just wrong. But that was part of the script. And as I wrote this, just think of the 80s graphics again. The statue began to spin on the film, and the faster and faster it was going, and all of a sudden, bam, the real King Louis appeared before us, decked out in his 17th century train, or, uh, king's clothing, train and all. And we were quite the spectacle to see in the hustle and bustle of downtown Louisville. And King Louis looked down at us and said, do you know who I am? As if he caught us, you know, graffitiing on the back of his statue. And we're like, no. He said, I'm King Louis, and this great city is named after me because of all my assistance I gave the colonies during the Revolution. And they named the city in my honor. Like, That's great. And then he proceeded to take us around various historical sites in the city and explain the city's rich history. However, the point of the documentary wasn't just to teach about Louisville's history, its primary objective was to show kids the importance of history in order to excite them about learning. Now, if you go to my wife's parents' house, they have one large cabinet dedicated to home movies. They pretty much have her, my wife and her sister's pre-college life recorded on VHS. And just on a side note, we were at Uncle Denny's house last week, and he had a VHS tape sitting on his countertop, and I picked it up, and I asked Jack Housley, my five-year-old, do you know what this is? And he said, a, a radio? And it just, it just shows me how fast time is getting away from us. Like he doesn't know what a VHS tape is. But my parents, not so much. I, I love my mom, but she has an obsession with cleaning. And if it's not being used, it's out to the trash. So went my 1980s breakout performance. So I have no record of this event ever happening. I even reached out to KET one time because I thought it'd be cool to share with my kids, but they had nothing in their archives, no evidence. 
Now, for history to continue to be remembered, it must be recorded. And thankfully, as Christians, our faith is grounded in historical facts, not just dates and events, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the biblical authors, left us a recorded history of our hopes and promises and future fulfillments. So turn with me this morning to 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. And it's there I want us to see how Peter calls us to live the Christian life. Now, I don't mean to confuse you here, but I'm going to transfer from, go from history to science real fast. Not bad for a guy who initially dropped out of college. And there are seven characteristics to all living, that all living organisms share, but I just want to highlight one. So according to Factmonster, and that's where us college dropouts go for our answers, all organisms need food for energy required to live and grow. So to live, you must have food, and if you have food, then by implications, you will grow. Food and growth. Now, the same thing is, requ is required for Christian living. In order to live the Christian life, you must feed yourself spiritually. And if you do, you will sustain growth. And the reality is, if you're not growing spiritually, you are dying. You're, you're shriveling. And I'm not saying you're dead or you lost your faith, your salvation, but a lack of growth should serve as an alarm clock that you need to do something. And so when I say I want to focus on how do we live the Christian life, what I mean by that is I want to focus on what do we fear ourselves so that we will grow. But before we get there, I want to just give a little context. We're jumping into 2 Peter, so I just want to give a little context to our verses this morning. The second letter of Peter is only three short chapter, chapters. The middle chapter focuses on these false teachers who are trying to come into the church, and more than likely they were just denying that there's a second coming of Jesus. And so if there's no second coming of Jesus, that means there's no judgment. If there's no judgment, well, just do what you want. And Peter's not going to have that. But the bookends, chapters 1 and 3, are primarily history lessons. Peter uses these chapters to remind Christians of the foundational truths required for salvation. And what we have here in verses 12 through 15 is an apostolic reminder. Some commentators refer to this as Peter's last testament. It's his reminder to Christians to not forget the truths they have heard. Unlike the false teachers who were fabricating these new stories, Peter uses words like remind, reminder, and recall to make it very clear. We should all be looking back for truth. So look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things. Now, the therefore points us back to what Peter had just said in verses 3 through 11, and we're going to get there in just a second. But look at Peter's intention. I will always remind you. This is one of those back to the future things, which, by the way, is the second greatest 80s movie of all time behind my 88 KT special. <laughs> Peter is putting something in place so that in the future, the churches will have something to remind them of what they have learned in the past. And Peter confirms this again over in chapter 3. He says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder. So Peter's intention here is to write a letter that can be used as a reminder. Now what does Peter want to, these churches to remember? What does he want to remind them? He says, these things. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, your translation has these qualities. And I'm going to stick my neck out here just a little bit, just enough. And I want to say that other translations may have the upper hand here. 
I think using these qualities has a way of drawing the reader back to the virtue qualities Peter just addressed in verses 5 through 7. So look back with me at these verses because they're a great example of where we should be growing as a Christian. So verses 5 through 7 in chapter 1 says, For this very reason, make it your effort to supplement your faith with goodness. And that supplement is to add. Add to your faith goodness with goodness knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. These are seven marks of a strong believer. And to grow in these areas will help carry us across the finish line. But Peter's writing this letter because salvation is at stake. And he makes that clear right before our verses this morning. In 111, he says, Entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. And there's no way Peter's main defense against false teachers or his message of salvation is merely for us to do something or to be something. And that's why I think these things is the more natural reading because it doesn't limit us to virtues, but points us back to everything Peter had just written, verses 3 through 11. In his second Peter commentary, Dr. Schreiner sums up these verses 3 through 11 nicely. He says, Christ has given believers everything they need for life and godliness and has called them by his powerful grace. Such grace serves as an incentive for a godly life of virtue. And a life of godliness is necessary for entering the eternal kingdom. Grace. Christianity can never be boiled down to a list of things to do or to be. And that's why before he gets to the list of virtues required for life and godliness, Peter begins with grace, the most essential aspect of our faith. It's so essential to our faith, Peter both opens and closes this book by saying, I pray that you would grow in grace. Because he knew that grace would be the primary means of their growth. Or as Dr. Schreiner says, it's an incentive. And we all need external motivators, don't we? And grace should motivate us. And the grace Peter is referring to begins with the knowledge that a holy God, who knows all of your sins, who knows that you will even fail him after you choose to follow him, has chosen to love us anyways. And because we are sinners, his choice to love us requires action. And I love Romans 5.8. I can't wait for Jim to get there. He said, God proves his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God proves, he gives evidence that he loves us. Now, many of you know I've been off work injured these past five months. And it's been quite a ride and I really appreciate everyone's support through this journey. I'm going to take a sip of water real fast, sorry. <coughs> On Wednesday of this past week, I received this card, um, and it was given to me by one of our majors at the firehouse, and yes, that's Woody, and it says, are you going to ride this thing out with your usual spunk? I like his style. But I just, I want to read one or two sentences from this card. <coughs> he says, my wife and I wanted to do something for you, but wasn't sure what, so we got you this gift card to Kroger. We know how hard it is not to be working and hope this helps a little. Hopefully you will be back soon in some capacity. If we can do anything for you, please know that we are here for you. I can't tell you how moved Mariah and I were by that gift. Not only was the gift card helpful, we've already spent it, but it was moving to know that this guy was one thinking about us 
And then two, he was moved to do something about it. Now, you know there's a difference between a bribe and motivation. A bribe says, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. And that's not Christianity. Grace says, I'll do this for you because I love you and I know you can't do it for yourself. And a love like that should motivate us to want to be with that person. And that's what God's grace should do for us. Knowing who we are and what God has done for us in Christ, displaying his love for us in such an extreme measure as to send his son to die for us, should motivate us to want to know him more. And to get us back to the text, I think Peter has more in mind than just verses 3 through 11. Look at the rest of verse 12. Even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. Peter's not telling, something, telling them something they didn't already know. And it's not just that they know the truth. Peter says you are being established in the truth. And that word established means that they are being strengthened. They are growing in the truth. And just think of a tree. A tree will not sustain growth if its roots aren't also growing. The taller a tree gets, the deeper and more widespread those roots have to be to sustain that growth, or that tree is just going to fall over. And Peter's telling the church, look, I see that you're growing, and I know that growing is because you are being established in the truth. Now, why would you go anywhere else for nutrition? It's working. Don't look anywhere else. Keep growing. Keep establishing and strengthening yourself in the truth. And Peter later reveals for us the truth he has in mind. And over in 3.2, he says, So that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. I think verses 3 through 11, those these things that Peter's referring to, that he wants to remind the churches of, is just Peter's brief description of the message of salvation found in the entire Bible the teaching of the prophets of the old and the apostles of the new. And we need to be motivated. And God has given us 66 books to bear witness to his grace to a very undeserving people. And the more we read this book, the more our hearts should be captivated by it. And because of my daughter Gloria's love for cats and the influence of the Abbots, we are now the proud owners of a cat named Bella. And every morning at 6.30, Bella will begin to cry for her food. And I say cry and not meow because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like a baby crying, and it's very eerie. Now, leave it to us. After five children, we have transitioned from the morning baby cry phase. We're out of that. Only did it get a, get a cat that sounds like one. And this cat is no dummy. If we don't answer her baby cry, she will then come to our bedroom door and start scratching at it. And between the baby cry sound and the scratching, it's like a scene from a horror movie. Thank you, Abbots. <laughs> but all joking aside, shouldn't we be like Bella when it comes to God's word? We know we need food. We know the only source that will provide it. And shouldn't we be doing all, our can all we can to feed ourselves from it? We should be like John Wesley, who describes himself as a man of one book. John Wesley says, I am a spirit come from God, returning to God, just hovering over a great gulf, till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. For this end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Kenwood, let us be a people of one book. 
Let us dare see what the power of God can do through this body when we immerse ourselves into this book. Oh, that we would be stronger and wiser and more loving and compassionate. That we would look and love more like Jesus. And as we move on to verse 13, I, I want to make the observation that there are probably people here this morning who fully agree with what I've just said. They know they need to grow. They know the power of the Spirit working through the Bible is the only source for that growth. But they just have a hard time wanting to go there. A hard time sitting down and opening God's Word. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there. And Peter knows this, and he has the solution. Look at verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. And Peter's pausing here for a moment, and he's reflecting on why he felt responsible to remind the churches of these certain things. In order to understand why Peter considered this to be the right thing for him to be doing, we have to keep going back in history. Back in Acts 4, we find Peter and John being arrested for proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And the Jewish leaders are about to let them go. And they say, we're going to let you go, but we just want you to do one thing. Shut your mouth. Quit talking about Jesus and this whole resurrection thing. And Peter and John respond back by saying, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And this was the backbone of Peter's ministry, pointing people back to Jesus. Just think even farther back at Acts 2. We have the Spirit descending on a group of people. And who's the first one to stand up when he gets the Spirit? It's Peter. And he starts teaching about Jesus. But why? Why is it so important for Peter to do this? Well, let's go back to the ascension. What does Jesus tell Peter and the other disciples to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how were they to do this? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And this wasn't the first time Peter learned that he would spend the rest of his days as a preacher of this gospel. Right before the ascension, Jesus had a little one-on-one -on -one time with Peter. He wants to build Peter's confidence back up from denying him three times. So he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you, Jesus. Well, feed my sheep. And I think between that command of Peter to feed my sheep and Jesus' command to teach everything I've commanded, Peter, Peter would know, well, to feed Jesus' sheep is to teach about Jesus. You see, when Peter was handed the keys to the church, he wasn't given a mere position or a title. Peter was given a mission. A mission to draw people to Christ by reminding them of what Jesus had taught. And he does this through his earthly ministry and through his inspired letters. And look at verse 13 again. As long as I'm in this bodily tent. Peter dedicated his life to serving Jesus. And as long as he was in his body, as long as he was alive, he would pursue this call. And we're going to see that this call would require the ultimate sacrifice for Peter. But before we get there, let's finish the rest of verse 13, and we'll see the effect Peter wanted his life and ministry to have on others. As long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. Now, the ESV gets the upper hand on this one. The ESV says to stir you up. And recall, we've seen that already in 3.1, where he said, I want to stir up your sincere understanding. Now, if Peter mentions this twice, it's important for us. Peter wants his ministry to arouse us, to awaken us, to stir us up. For all you Southerners here, he doesn't want your sugar to settle on the bottom of your tea. 
That, that, that sugar is useless. It does not sweeten the pot. And that's what Peter says you will be if you're not stirred up in the faith. You will be useless for the kingdom of God. And to be useful, we need to be stirred up. And this should be one of the goals of a pastor's preaching. Our job isn't as simple as telling hungry people to eat. Our job in this pulpit is to make people hungry, to stir people's desires through God's word. And we do this not by just telling them the same truths, the same old ways. We don't just keep telling them they are sinners and say gospel. Peter's solution is that we, we grow in grace and, and we grow deeper in our understanding of the gospel message, both as it applies to our sin and our suffering. And that's why I love Jim's grandiose, that's the word, right? Grandiose view of scripture. He has a great way of connecting the dots and just making us just see how big this story really is. And it all culminates in the cross. Now, to go back to my Kroger gift card for a second, having that gift card really doesn't do anything for me. To get the benefit out of the card, I need to go to Kroger and exchange it for food. And that's the job of a pastor, to instruct the flock what is fully theirs in Christ and through the word, motivate them to use all the riches they have been provided. Our goal should be to make people as hungry as Martin Luther was for the word. And that's a great goal, because listen to what Luther says about the Bible. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I want to know what it was and what it meant. The more we can make our people hungry for the word of God, the more branches our people are shaking, the more we will see the power of God at work. But it's just not the responsibility of the pastor to stir up the congregation. It's the responsibility of every member. The author of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, the author of Hebrews uses a different word for stir here, but the meaning is the same. We've all been called to spur each other on in love and good works. Yesterday, I heard a local pastor say this, to the extent you believe you are loved is the extent you are willing to love one another. And that's grace being used as a motivator. When we begin to shed the shame and the guilt of our sin and begin seeing ourselves as the treasures that we really are in the gospel, then we can begin to love others in the same way, out of free will and not false motives. Chris stirred me on yesterday to love and good works. There's three of us elders at our daughter's ballet recital. And only one of us remember to bring flowers for our daughter after the recital, Chris Birch. And he sees Jim and I in our need. I forgot it because I was working on this sermon. I'm not sure what Jim's excuse was. But <laughs> he sees us in our need, and he takes two out. And he gives one to Jim and one to myself. Ruthie, you got shorted. I'm sorry. But he gave out of an abundance. And that's what we should be doing for the congregation. We, we love not only in word, but in deed. And when we see those opportunities, we, we bounce on them. And that spurs us on. That's grace as a motivator. Now, can you see where I'm going with this? What's Peter's solution for creating a desire for God's word? Well, Peter's ministry, his future letters, the teaching of the other apostles and the prophets were meant to stir up God's people. And we know... The church's foundation is built on this teaching. That means the ministry of the church should also be stirring up God's people. Then the author of Hebrews tells us that the congregation should meet in order to stir one another up. What's Peter's solution? 
You need the local church. You will never cultivate a love for God and his word that will sustain growth if you are not sitting under solid, soul-edifying teaching and the encouragement that comes from fellowship. And that's why in Acts 2, after Peter stands up and people are being saved, you know Luke says they dedicated themselves to four wise things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. And the first two are in place, as we have seen, to stir us up in the gospel. The breaking of bread serves as a visual reminder of the gospel. And prayer as a reminder that we are dependent upon God for everything and are now free to go to a holy God because of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in the fact that the Bible tells me that I'm so weak that I need to constantly be stirred up or shaken awake. That means I don't have to look for joy inside of me during those seasons of drought. I have a place to go to. What Peter is saying, what we need to do is read the word, be taught in the word, encourage each other through the word, and cry out to God to lavishly pour out his love to us that he displayed in his son that we call the word. As we look to verse 14, we see to Peter that this mission just wasn't worth living for, it was worth dying for. So look with me at verse 14. Since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. This is the second time we've seen Peter refer to his body as a tent. And that's Peter's way of referring to his body as just a temporary dwelling place. It's just a real elaborate way of saying, I'm about to die. And Peter knew that that would happen. He knew that would be the cost for following Jesus. And I love this quote by Dwight D. Eisenhower. Life is certainly only worthwhile as it represents struggle for worthy causes, meaning we all need something in our lives worth sacrificing for. And Elizabeth Elliot says it this way, there is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. And we have a lot of honorable professions amongst us at Kenwood. And to be an honorable profession, they're, they're there's sacrifices that have to be made. They, they worked hard to, to get to where they're at, and they could have to continue working hard, hard to, cons- to sustain that, that job. A lot of honorable professions. I think of Matt, who had to leave his, his wife for four weeks as he went for training. He serves us in the Coast Guard. But one particular person and profession comes to mind, and that's only because I've had the opportunity to share my life with him for the past 12 years, and that's Paul Tennant, MD. And if you know Paul, he hates this right now. He doesn't like to be talked about, but here it is. Uh, Ryan and I, we, we've had the opportunity to share our life with Paul these last 12 years, and, and we were there with him when they came to Louisville and began residency. And it's there I, I got to see what a doctor actually has to sacrifice to become a doctor. I remember going to their house those early years, and we would get together for food, dinner, fellowship, and it, it wouldn't be unlikely for Paul just to fall asleep. He's put in 16, 20-hour days, and we'd be sitting talking on the couch, and he would just fall asleep. Sometimes it'd be at the dinner table. He'd even just doze off. And you know, Sarah, she was quick to apologize for it, but it just became part of life. Newly married, young kids, residency, just a lot of sacrifice. But he knew that sacrifice was, was worth it because at the end, he was going to be in a profession that was actually like saving lives. It was worthy of all that to get where he's at. And he still has to continue to sacrifice to be there. Now, how much so more so is, is Peter. How much more honorable is a profession than an apostle? And Peter shows the worthiness of his calling, not just by his suffering, his imprisonments, and his beatings he endured during his earthly life, 
but that it would ultimately lead to his death. A death he, he reveals in this letter he believes would happen in the near future. He says, this tent I will soon lay aside. It's tough to say what Peter had in mind here. Now, it's possible he's writing because it's during the Nero persecution, and he knows it's just a matter of time before Rome searches out the remaining apostles. Maybe it's just because Peter is old, and he knows he probably doesn't have much time left. Whatever the case, the urgency to write the letter comes from the fact he knew that his days were limited, and he wanted to make sure to leave this last reminder to the churches to stay the course. And though he may not have known the exact time, he did know how he would die because he says Jesus made it clear to him. And likely Peter's pointing back to this conversation he had with Jesus about feeding his sheep. After the third time of telling Peter, do you love me? Yes, we'll feed my sheep. Jesus says this, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. John explains, he said this to indicate by what type of death Peter will glorify God. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes. Jesus assures him that he's going to grow old. This is the guy that rose from the dead. Pretty good guarantee that you're going to live to old life. Wouldn't you want old age? Wouldn't we all want that guarantee? But Jesus follows that. But when you get old, you're going to be taken against your will, and you're going to die in the most unpleasant way. And Peter's probably thinking, now, why would you have to go and do that for? Ruin such a good thing like that. And could you imagine spending your days knowing your life would end in crucifixion? That didn't faze Peter. And tradition has it that Peter was even crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to die the same way as Jesus. Now, Peter may have viewed himself as unworthy, but he makes it very clear that his call to feed Jesus' sheep was a worthy cause, worthy of life, and worthy of death. This past week, I was at the Christian Book Nook off Preston Highway, and there was this elderly lady on the phone in front of me in the checkout line. And I'm not sure who she was talking to on the other line, but whoever it was, this elderly lady was encouraging them through Scripture, and it was some rich encouragement. I was eavesdropping. I was being fed. She checked out, still on the phone, and she went on her way, and as I got up to the line, the owner said, man, you won't believe that lady's story. He said, 10 years ago, she walked in his store and said, uh, I've been asked to lead a Bible study down at the Women's Resource Center, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never taught scripture, though I've been in Sunday school for 60 years, uh, but I believe that God has called me to do this. What do I need? He said, you have a Bible? I have a Bible. Well, how about a couple good commentaries? I think you'll be okay. She said, I'll take them. And he said, for the past 10 years, she has led a vibrant Bible study down at the Women's Resource Center where countless women have either been saved or are being strengthened in their faith. And you and I will probably never know her name. She'll never write a book or have her blog. But she is someone we can all look up to in the faith. Like Peter, she knew her days were limited, and she wanted to get the most out of them and couldn't think of anything better to do than to share Jesus with others. And I, as I listened to her talk on that phone, all that biblical wisdom pouring out of her mouth, I was sure of one thing. That was the fruit of all that study. And the saying is true, if you want to learn, teach. We get into God's word, not just for ourselves, but for others. The more you know you are loved, the more you can love others. And we all want to invest our time into something worthwhile, meaningful. So thankfully, we've all been called to look after the sheep. Some as shepherds, some as part of the flock. But we've all been called to stir one another up in love and good works 
through reminding one another of the grace we've all received. And in case we think we can go anywhere else for truth, Peter circles right back around to his purpose for writing this letter. That he was leaving something behind for the church that will remind them, remind us of God's grace, which will enable us to grow. Look at verse 15 with me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. In just four short verses, remind, reminder, recall. There is no other fountain of grace that we can go to. Peter will eventually go on to call these false teachers waterless springs. Their new teaching may tingle the ears, may draw you in, but they really have nothing to provide. And that's not the case with Jesus. His resurrection solidifies that what he promises, he can fulfill. And listen to what Jesus has to offer. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Know that I am with you always. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My grace is sufficient for you. And these things, they are just a small taste of all God's promises found for you in this book. Let us be a people who keep going back to this book. Let's pray. Father, we pray it is as natural for us to go to this book as it is a deer to a brook, that we will go here for our nourishment, and that you would be so kind to fill us with your spirit when we do. Help us to go out and to be more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.